The following presentation was recorded live at the 2014 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org. All right, well, good afternoon, everyone. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to our panel on eco-regional design. Uh, we have a fantastic, smaller than we expected, but still fantastic panel here. Um, and we are looking at the question of how do we align political governance with the ecological realities rooted in watersheds, food sheds, culture sheds, and regional economies. So it's a great, big, juicy topic. And I'm even gonna add a couple more wrinkles to that as well. Um, I'm gonna give, my name is Kirsten Schwind, I'm moderating this panel, and I'm gonna give a little bit of uh, framing uh, to this topic, and then we have the great pleasure of hearing from David Orr, who is this distinguished professor of environmental studies and politics at Oberlin College, and a well-known name, probably many of you, many of you know who he is and Luis Bedsworth, who is the Deputy Director of the California Governor's Office of Planning and Research. And because we have um, only a couple of panelists, the wonderful thing is that we'll also have more time for discussion and to hear from you all as well, which is always fantastic because the audience members bring such great, rich perspectives and, and questions and comments as well, so we'll have plenty of time for that. All right, great, so let's dive into our topic here. So I think that eco-governance is such an important topic because most environmental problems can be traced back to failures of governance. Failures of go governance of common resources, the commons. Failures of governance of balance between human rights and nature's rights. Or failures of governance between humans themselves. Failures of governance of equity. Climate change is a major example. We don't lack the technical know-how to solve climate change. What we lack is the political will and the structures of governance to solve climate change at the local, regional, national, and international level. And so fundamentally, getting the questions of governance right is, I think, the key to solving environmental problems, but it's a very, very tricky question. I've been thinking a lot about this. 10 years ago, I co-founded an organization based in Oakland, California, called Bay Localize. And we work on deep solutions to climate change in the Bay Area that can be ramped up and replicated in other parts of the state and nationwide and worldwide. For example, we developed a community resilience toolkit that you can download for free on our website. Um, that is now used in 46 states and 30 countries around the world that helps community groups think through what do resilient local systems for food, water, energy, transportation, housing, economy, economics, social services, what do these look like in your community? What can they look like? Uh, we lead a, uh, a coalition of social equity groups that are working for greater representation of the people who will be most impacted by climate change in climate adaptation policies. We also host the Local Clean Energy Alliance, which is Northern California's largest grassroots clean energy advocacy alliance, working for local control over our energy systems. 
And one of the reasons that we look at the scale of governance is that it gets at this question of feedback loops. So this is the idea that when you have people who are most impacted by an environmental problem making the decisions, that they will come up with policies that will help solve that problem. And this gets fundamentally at the question of representation. Are the people who are in charge of making the policies people who actually have a vested interest in making good policies for people and for the environment? And this is really the crux of the problem, representation. How do we effectively give representation to nature? How do we effectively give representation to the 99%? The reality of money, politics, power, and privilege shape representation, even at the local level. I want to give an example of the city of Pacifica, California, which is a sleepy little surfer town south of San Francisco. It's nowhere anywhere on any major intersection of politics. There's no reason for you know, state or, or national money to flow into elections there. And yet, even in Pacifica, with a uh, population of 40,000 people, sleepy little beach town, it takes $10,000 to win a city council seat. So that's approximately $300 per registered voter to win a city council seat in Pacifica, California. And so imagine what it takes to win a city council seat in a place like Richmond, California, which is a real crossroads of political interests of the oil company and, uh, and low-income people of color. This, you know, that actually takes much more money to, to win a city council seat. Imagine, scale this up to the regional level, to the state level, to the national level. Even in Pacifica, residents who are most closely aligned with the local chamber of commerce which in itself is not necessarily a, you know, a bad organization, but they, the, the local Chamber of Commerce, of course, is aligned politically with the National Chamber of Commerce, which is aligned very closely with the organizations that are making the most money from climate change. And then you see the problem that even at the local level, getting representation right, getting the people who can best represent the ecological interests of their ecosystem is very difficult within the political system we're at. So the question is, how do we change our structures of governance so that at all these levels, we can have representation of people who actually have an interest in solving our environmental problems and our social problems and the ways that they interact. So the topic of this panel is, in some ways, right-sizing of government according to the scale of ecosystems. But it's also about how do we set up our representation in governance to make sure that we can actually solve our ecological problems. Unfortunately, we have two very smart people um, who will be able to um, yeah, address some, some version of that topic, at least. Uh, first, we have uh, Dr. David Orr, who is Professor of Environmental Studies and Senior Advisor to the President at Oberlin College. He's an award-winning scholar and leader in the sustainability movement, and he's the author of Down to the Wire, The Last Refuge, The Nature of Design, Earth and Mind, and Ecological Literacy, and co-editor of Hope is an Imperative. Welcome, David Orr. Please, thank you. Let me find my... <coughs> Is that... 
Somebody may have to help me here. Is that Peter up there? Well, uh, while we're working on this, do you have a, oh, here we go. Let me, let me start and just say this. The, um, first of all, it's nice to be here, and thanks for being here on a uh, really sunny day. This is the only place I know you get days like this, people come inside to listen to folks like me talk, uh, and I'd rather be out there, and uh, so we're going to cut this short. Here's the, um, uh, there we go. That's just an attention getter. Uh, and the uh, notice the guy's face over her uh, back there. Anyway, it has nothing to do with the program, but it, it has to do with uh, maybe how we we think about these things and uh, the situation we're in. Um, typically, climate change and environmental issues are seen as matters of technology or economics. And the point of the panel here is it really matters of governance first and foremost. So when we're told that uh, climate change is the, the largest uh, market failure in history, before that it was a uh, massive political failure. The first warning to a U.S. president on climate change was given in 1965. Uh, in 1976, uh, I was a minor part of uh, Jimmy Carter's transition team, and he came into the office uh, one day and asked for a paper on the most important environmental issue uh, his administration would face. At that time, he was running up ahead of uh, Gerald Ford by seven or eight points in the polls, and eventually the, the gap narrowed a good bit. But we did a paper uh, for Carter, which still reads well, uh, which is a mark of incredible failure by the, by the government, the largest issue humans have ever faced aside from uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, and we, we just dropped the ball. And uh, so we have no de jure climate policy. Our de facto climate policy, of course, is pedal to the metal and growth is still more important and so forth. So uh, for me, and the background uh, for me in London in 2008, I wrote a book called uh, Down to the Wire. And it's a, a kind of a 35,000 foot meditation of what it means for us to live in this era of uh, climate change. And uh, it's not really global warming. It really is planetary destabilization. It's like throwing a stone into a pond, and you see the ripples of change go out from there. And so this is a huge issue. We all, we all know that. Um, and so um, that was a 35,000-foot meditation. And about the same time, I worked for a foundation then that put uh, some large amount of money into developing what was called the President's Climate Action Plan. And that document was a, um, an attempt to bring together 200 or so climate scientists and policy people and address what do we do? And, and the assumption was that climate change isn't just another uh, issue on a long list of issues. It is the linchpin that holds those issues together. Get that right, you get lots of other things right. And so, uh, uh, and, and the other uh, big assumption was we just don't have much time and time is uh, not our ally in this. So think of this as going down a highway and we've been, uh, at the end of which is oblivion or a cliff or whatever, and we've been passing exit ramps off that highway to safer destinations than uh, we're otherwise going to. So uh, that, uh, we met with Obama, we met with all the candidates that ran for uh, the presidency in uh, 2008, except uh, uh, one guy from Tennessee, 
Fred Thompson, who didn't believe the issue was real. But uh, it didn't have a major effect at that time. We stayed with it. Uh, Bill Becker and some of the people involved in this met with the whole cabinet back in January, and so there, there's been an ongoing dialogue. And we commissioned the uh, University of uh, Colorado Law School to help us think through what a president could do uh, without ever having to go to Congress. And so basically for that reason or for whatever reason, uh, President Obama has been very good, kind of below the radar screen, but shifting federal purchasing and regulations and so forth. But um, we still don't have a um, we still don't have a climate policy uh, anywhere near adequate uh, to what we what we need. Uh, and Louise and people in California uh, government have been uh, really setting the pace. Uh, the other day at the pre-conference intensive, which I, I missed. Uh, a good bit was aired about what California is doing. It really is quite exciting and amazing leadership. So let me start. That's kind of background. Let me start with uh, what we're doing now. And I want to start with Ann Wilson Spurn's quote here. Now is the time for telling new tales, for retelling old dilemmas, how to live in the world and preserve it, how to sustain tradition and foster invention, how to promote freedom and cultivate order, how to forge identity and value difference, and how to appreciate parts and grasp the whole. Now is the time to tell stories. And one of the great things about Bioneers and the 25th uh, celebration of this organization is that those stories are being told here, and the work of all of you in the room and, and the thousands of Bioneers uh, around the world doing great work. We're, we're beginning to weave a new narrative in this. Let me start with uh, also part of the background. At level one, can we tell a new story and begin to reweave the fabric in which our, our politics uh, are embedded? Uh, this is a building we did in, uh, began in 1995. Uh, it's called the Adam Joseph Lewis Center. It was a project that uh, landed on my desk for lots of different reasons to raise money for and so forth. And so we pulled together a group of about 250 students, uh, faculty, administration, town people that wanted to be involved in making a new building. This building, I think, I'm correct in saying this, is still the only entirely solar-powered, zero-discharge academic building, I believe, in the United States, maybe the world. Um, this is uh, a view of it. What we try to do in an acre and a quarter setting, a very small building, 14,200 square feet, is to make it a laboratory of sustainability. So uh, I deal with a generation of young people who look at these curves going up and down, and, and there's no, uh, no place for them in the world. Uh, it's kind of beamed me out of here, Scotty, and uh, the world is changing dramatically for them. It's very easy to get uh, very despairing. Uh, so the theory, the pedagogical theory, or the educational theory of this was to do something about these things at a scale which you can get your head around. I don't know what you do with the whole world. Uh, that's a larger, different scale problem, but I know you can make buildings that are powered by sunshine. So this building was the, the students came in and made the uh, standard for it, and long story short, the idea was that this building would cause no ugliness, human or ecological, someplace else or at some later time. Now, if that's the standard, then you go upstream to wells and mines and forests and the manufacturing establishments where the materials start that are crystallized in this thing we call a building. Then you also go downstream. If it's added to the toxic burden of the planet, which most buildings do considerably, or global warming or uh, compromising human dignity, you can't say that that building is a good building. Now, that's kind of the macroscopic uh, standard of aesthetics. Uh, and like truth, beauty, and justice, uh, you try to get there, you never quite get there. Buildings are just buildings. But what this did more than anything else was to spark imagination of possibilities. And so coming out of this project, um, there were about 10 or 11 buildings, or pardon me, companies started, included Lucid Designs, which is the, uh, for my money, the premier 
uh, high-performance building monitoring uh, company in the world. And that started as a class uh, uh, held in this building in 2001 uh, with uh, people from NREL and a group of 10 or 11 students, three of which started this, uh, the company Lucid Designs. The back of the building is a uh, uh, student-maintained orchard and garden and so forth. So this was a laboratory in food and energy and building monitoring. An interior shot, this is Bill McKibben on Earth Day a couple years ago. Living Machine designed by John Todd. And the idea here was, was uh, to use nature as a standard. Uh, we teach biology by carving up dead cats. And the goal here was to teach biology by assembling an ecosystem that actually does things. So uh, uh, it handles all our wastewater. The standard for the building was drinking water in, drinking water out. This is the uh, PV ray on the roof. And I got up on a ladder one day and took this picture, waited for the sun just to get to the right angle. I didn't have any idea how much of an impact the building uh, had until I saw this. In uh, the UK, um, Harvey's Beer had taken my picture and put it on their label. So my people are talking to their people. We're working out some way to get Harvey's beer to my front door every, every week. Um, say again? Good, good. Uh, this is a net energy uh, exporter. Last year, we uh, generated 144% of the power needs of the building. This year, it'll be uh, probably closer to 150%. Um, this is part of the Lucid design. This is the building monitoring system. And what Lucid is now doing is taking the monitoring system and applying it to the, the larger uh, town and also to the region, and I'll explain that, as well as lots of other buildings around the United States. This is kind of the rest of the story at this level. What we did was to not debate ecological design, but simply start it and do a building that was, uh, at that time in the 1990s, uh, uh, a model of ecological design. It was selected by the American Institute of Architects a few years ago as the most important green building of the past 30 years. So the idea here was not debate it, simply do it and talk about it later. And then the question is, can we take that model, that little tiny bench lab scale experiment in sustainability, and apply that to a, a city? And so uh, four years ago, nearly five years ago now, we launched what was called the Oberlin Project. And this is Oberlin, Ohio. Uh, I sat out here at Bioneers a few years ago, I showed this picture, and uh, uh, somebody, I said, well, this was, uh, this, by the way, is a picture of the downtown of Oberlin. I said, we got this picture by attaching a first-year student to a helium-filled balloon. His name was Bob, and he was from someplace in New Jersey, and uh, uh, we gave him a camera with electronic download, and uh, I said, we, uh, we miss him. Uh, he didn't transfer, he, he kind of uh, drifted away. And... Uh, woman came up to me afterwards and said, you know, you really shouldn't treat your students like that. And so uh, we didn't do that. Bob didn't take this picture. This is a taken actually from a balloon. We are a uh, city Midwest uh, in the Rust Belt. Uh, this is the heart of the U.S. economy uh, 50 or 60 years ago. So uh, this is, uh, well, I forgot the map here. We'll have to go back to that anyway. Uh, Detroit is to the northwest uh, of us by about 84 miles on a straight line across Lake Erie. Toledo is to the, to the west, uh, about 65 miles. Youngstown, about an hour and a quarter to the east. Cleveland, 35 miles to the east. So we're the old U.S. economy, uh, Rust Belt. Uh, typical Rust Belt cities, we have a high poverty level, 28% uh, at or below the poverty level. 52% uh, of uh, the kids in school are free and reduced lunch. Uh, so we started a, a program, and this is the college and the city coming together. 
in something called the Oberlin Project. And we had five goals, the first of which is to develop a 13-acre block downtown, do it at the platinum level, and can you power a block with roughly a three megawatt uh, power need? Can you power that from sunshine, eliminate waste, and do it at the platinum uh, ND neighborhood development level? And uh, so we're working on that. The second thing was to a goal to become not just carbon neutral, but carbon positive, generate more power than we use. So we're one of the uh, original Clinton Climate Initiative cities. We've been rolled into the C40 cities. We are this long list of cities. Uh, we're down a little asterisk at the bottom, a little city of 10,000, but we're one of the C40 cities. Uh, we're the only one so far to reach participant status uh, for climate change. 90% of our electric system last year was carbon free. Uh, our goal is uh, by 2025 to be to have city and college both is uh, carbon free. Um, we've uh, surveyed about 20,000 acres around the city, and the question is, can we be be pardon me, begin to develop a local food system uh, that meets roughly, say, 70% of the food needs of, uh, of the city? That's roughly, in our case, a $20 million market. Now, the point of this in climate change is we're not going to import food from out here from California at a price we could afford at a volume we need in a few years. Your drought is part of a longer-term pattern. Uh, when uh, Secretary Hsu, uh in 2009, in March of 2009, said that uh, the age of California uh, export agriculture is coming to a, a close, uh, we should have been listening in Ohio. Uh, food's going to be a huge issue. If we were a state that once had about 250,000 farms, we're now down to roughly 65,000 farms, uh, mostly in the corn and soybean business. Fourth goal is to do this as an educational venture. So the idea, like we did with the Lewis Center, is to take the remaking of the city and making the city a model of sustainability up to a, a different uh, level. Uh, so in the doing of this, we educate a public and begin to build a very different kind of citizenry that understands the reality of where we're headed and how we avoid the, the worst that could lie ahead. And then the last part is to replicate this model around. So we've taken, uh, we've taken the city and we've created a series of different task, for, task forces. And the title of this slide is uh, Full Spectrum Sustainability. And a friend of uh, uh, this and a partner in this effort, uh, Pat Doherty, a newspaper man, said, well, this is like full spectrum sustainability. Now, when you think about this, what we've done typically in this movement is we have a sustainable ag movement, and there's a public policy movement, and a green build movement, and a green education movement. So we've been as bad as uh, you know, uh, the standard industrial model. We've isolated or uh, siloed these areas. Our goal here is to begin to tie them together so that public policy decisions, the management of the, all these issues is done in a way that's a systems context. So uh, any, any part helps to reinforce the larger whole. Um, this is a, um, uh, so you don't, don't bother reading this, this is a um, uh, slide made out of an article that Danella Meadows uh, wrote uh, probably 12 or 13 years ago before she died. Uh, and what Dana did in this was to ask, where do you intervene in systems, whether it's Oberlin College or uh, California or General Motors or the Pentagon? Where do you intervene to get maximum change? And this is, so these are ranked in inverse order. Uh, so the things at the top here mark slow the damage, uh, kind of like walking uh, uh, north on a southbound train. Uh, they slow things, uh, but they don't deal with the structure of the problem. They change the coefficients. And when you get down to the bottom, you're dealing with real structural changes, with changes of worldview. Now, you can quarrel with this, but the point of this, we distributed this article 
to uh, several hundred people in the city to get people thinking about how you begin to change this system. Now, the point here in relative to this panel is beginning to turn the heat up at the citizens' level, to begin to uh, create competent people who understand sustainability and where we're headed and so forth uh, in lieu or in the vacuum of top-down uh, help on this and, and leadership in Washington and many state capitals, uh, certainly in our case in Columbus. Uh, to begin to build a citizen's uh, network at a scale that really begins to matter politically. So we're trying to get people to understand how do you change the system. Now you can, this is not scriptural, you can quarrel with this. Uh, you could say that the Voting Rights Act of uh, 1965, which was a legal measure, changed the worldview down here at the bottom. So you can argue about this, but the point was not to discuss this as right or wrong. The point was to get people thinking about how you actually change systems. And it will vary from California to Ohio, issue to issue, from time to time, and so forth. Uh, one other important part of this. A good bit of the sustainability uh, discussion is a lot of uh, kind of finger-wagging, sort of Presbyterian uh, uh, finger-wagging. I grew up in a Presbyterian home. and. The old quip, uh, the Presbyterians are the kind of people that lie awake at night worrying that somebody somewhere is having a good time. <laughs> um, so Oberlin College, this is going to sound like an advertisement for Oberlin College, but the college has a great conservatory music, world famous. Uh, we turn out more young people to go on for PhDs in the sciences and the other small liberal arts college in the country year after year. Uh, a great art museum, uh, the upper left picture is the Allen Art Museum. That's ranked number three in higher education behind those at Harvard and Yale. Um, and so the thought became, as we develop this downtown block, let's have a party. It includes art and performance and great food and so forth. The thing that's missing is uh, we had a really awful hotel uh, built in 1955. It was uh, uh, Motor Inn. And my boss uh, at the college is an attorney, was an attorney. And when I used to say that uh, that hotel was a plausible excuse for limited nuclear war, uh, he told me not to ever say that again, so I don't. I've stopped mentioning that. So um, anyway, the idea is to begin to combine assets. And the larger point is, how do communities begin to pull assets together to change the political dialogue? So can we have sustainability as something of a party? It hits both halves of the brain. So it's the artistic and you know, innovative part and humorous and so forth. And then, oh, by the way, it's powered by sunshine. So can we bring these together into a larger dialogue? And I think that dialogue is critically important. This is the block, uh, Google picture of the block. And up the top is the Allen Art Museum and then Performing Arts Center in the middle and the world's worst hotel, a plausible excuse for limited nuclear wars down at the bottom. That's what we're going to replace it with. We started construction on uh, the hotel about a month ago that will be the first entirely solar-powered uh, hotel conference center, uh, I think, in the world. And this is cloudy Ohio. If you can do solar-powered buildings at this scale in Ohio, you can do them anywhere. And of course, we get more sunshine than uh, Germany gets, which uh, on some days has gotten 50% of its energy from renewable and, uh, sources. So this is a hotel, a conference center, commercial space, and so forth. It'll be a brew pub and a jazz club and some other things with it. This is the, the part of the thing that is uh, driving us. We needed a driver in a downtown economy. And this begins to change the whole dialogue. So we have people right and left and so forth, but coming together around downtown renewal and an improved economy that becomes, uh, becomes a buyer for local foods and art and crafts and so forth. These are three Oberlin graduates, uh, Josh Newman, Ben. This is the New York Times story about them. And right across the street in that hotel is this $17 million complex done at the 
USG, uh, GBC, the uh, U.S. Green Building Council gold standard. Uh, this is apartments, uh, condominiums, and commercial space on the ground floor. The point for you younger people is these kids did this in their early 20s. They had no money. Uh, they're poor as church mice, and, uh, uh, but they raised $17 million, begged, borrowed, and stole $17 million, and did an amazing project. And this, uh, uh, this is part of the downtown renaissance in, in Oberlin. This is a 3.2 megawatt output solar array that we did. Uh, we are 24-7 uh, power is about 11 megawatts. We peak at 22. This is three, so it shaves a big part of the peak off. This is, we're one of the Clinton Climate Initiative, now C40 cities. Uh, Sherrod Brown, uh, some of you may know, in the U.S. Senate, uh, this is a 100 kW array on the Lewis Center. So this is what we've done in downtown. So the idea is, could you make this a model of sustainability? Everything in black has been done. Everything in red is still in play. Uh, the Oberlin Inn, the gateway, is uh, be a $34, $35 million project. Maya Lin is doing a sculpture for us uh, uh, at that hotel also. So the question is, could we begin to change the political dialogue in the area by making this a model of sustainability? And the answer is yes. These are the things that we've done so far. In total, we've spent or, or committed about $106 million, most of which is private investment money. So we've taken a dollar of philanthropy and converted that into about $5 of, or a little bit better of uh, private investment. This is what this means. And it's it scanned down this. If, if you're a young student coming into Oberlin, this little town out uh, in the middle of uh, Ohio, uh, well, actually, Northern Isle. Uh, it's a really cool 24-7 downtown that's starting to emerge. It's a fun place to be. If you're a faculty member, it's better facilities. If you're a business person, it's more business in the downtown. For Sherrod Brown and people in government's economic renewal from the grassroots up, because government isn't going to help us a whole lot right now. For Bill Clinton, it was climate action. A city can become carbon neutral even when you've got a poverty level of 28%, and you can do it in a way that drives the economy. For me as an educator, this is a great educational model. I've got students working in this project, and they're working with uh, some of the brightest people I know in, in the design and architecture and engineering field. For the design team, it's the model of integrated ecological design. And we think of <laughs> sustainability as being a system concept. It really has not been. It's a series of kind of silos. Can we bring these together in a system where the parts reinforce the whole? And it's also part of a larger effort at national security. Now, let me take it up one more level and end. And, and. Can you take that model up to the city region scale? How many of you know the name Jane Jacobs? Uh, okay, Jane Jacobs, uh, if those of you that don't know her, she, she was a phenomenal person. She was a great urban uh, theorist and historian, wrote a book called The uh, Death and Life of Great American Cities. Later wrote a book called uh, The Economy of Cities. And in that, she said national economies don't grow. It's city economies or city regions, as she described it, that grow. And so that's how national economies grow, by the aggregation of what happens in, in city, city regions like New York or San Francisco or whatever. And so the key to city growth was what you called import substitution. Nothing new here. You can find that in, in economic uh, 101 textbooks. But the idea is that if you need it, make it, grow it, process it, service it locally, buy it locally. And so you avoid these long supply chains. In our case, buy food locally, not from California. Buy your technology from uh, local vendors and uh, manufacturing companies, but not from China necessarily. So every place that you can, substitute uh, locally homegrown things for things you otherwise import. So the theory that we're working on, and one of my partners, uh, John Warbach, is down here from Michigan State in the front row. The idea here is to begin to start by taking the buying and investing power of higher education 
And so uh, our endowment at Oberlin is give or take $800 million. Our budget is uh, up into oh, roughly $200 million per year. Can we begin to redirect that to buy locally, to support local economies? And can I, as a faculty member, take part of my retirement funds and invest that locally? Uh, the focus is on, uh, the second bullet here is on uh, three things. Uh, urban redevelopment, what's called smart growth, local agriculture, sustainable agriculture and food systems, and then renewable energy, and I'll also add up here efficiency, which is a, a critical thing missing here. The process is simply import substitution. Can we shift, say, a billion dollars per year uh, into local uh, redevelopment? And the theory also is you can't solve Detroit's problems or Cleveland's problems or Toledo's problems or Oberlin's for that matter just within those cities. You have to begin to extend the idea of the city region around the Lake Erie uh, Western Shore. So we're looking for all those places where two plus two is 22, not just four. This is the region. Uh, at the north end, I don't have Flint on, on this map, the north end is Flint, Michigan, which uh, a city the mayor told me the tax uh, revenues dropped 20% per year. That's a city in economic freefall. And this was the wealthiest part of the United States, say, 60 years ago. Youngstown, Ohio here in 1940 had the highest per capita income of any city in the United States. And that city now looks like the German army marched through in 1943 and just destroyed everything. It's come back a bit, but it's got a long, long way to go. So this is the region. Uh, call it the uh, Lake Erie Crescent region because it's around the, the western shore of Lake Erie. And then the theory is to take the buying and investing power of these organizations listed on the left and to start here, move uh, part of their buying and investing power into these three areas of smart growth or, or urban renewal, uh, local food, sustainable agriculture, renewable energy, and again, I'd add efficiency to this. So uh, imagine, for example, this is a Cleveland Indian Stadium. Uh, the owner told me that the Cleveland Indians will be a World Series winner in uh, 2016, so look out, Giants. Uh, here they come. And, uh, well, he, he promised me. I'm, th this picture actually was taken from his, his booth, uh, and he promised me just shortly uh, before this picture was taken, I thought, well, if you're going to win the World Series, I'm going to get a picture. I'll sell it on eBay or something. But uh, anyway, uh, imagine sports teams uh, and hospital complexes and large NGOs begin to shift their buying and investing power. We're talking about the first pebble off the, the mountain, and how do you start that avalanche of change? It will be uh, done by necessity, but also opportunity. But imagine sports stadiums where uh, they're powered by sunshine, current sunshine. Imagine local foods, uh, you know, uh, local roadkill in the ballpark Franks. Uh, <laughs> local and begin to change the nature of this movement. So from what my friend Wes Jackson calls people like us as weenie-armed environmentalists, uh, the guys, and the most of the guys, in pickup trucks with rifle racks. But let's make this a big movement, a big tent. So uh, let me end with a couple other shots. Everything in red on this picture of Detroit is uh, blighted property. And in this 140 square miles, and John uh, Warbach down here in the front works in Detroit uh, with Michigan State faculty colleagues, but uh, Within this 140 square miles of Detroit, you could drop Boston, Manhattan, and San Francisco and have room for about 10 Oberlins left over. That's 140 square miles. It used to be a city of 2 million, a little bit more. Uh, now it's a city maybe of a little bit under six, uh, 700,000. But imagine cities being revitalized with local buying and the, the vacant property going out. Now, the other point here is this. Uh, people are going to be coming back north. You're not going to keep 4 million people in the Phoenix Valley as climate gets warmer and drought begins to really settle in. 
you won't have Texas as a growing uh, state much longer. People are going to be coming back to where there's water and fairly temperate climate. So this is a different way to think about politics and organization. When government is broken, what do we do? We cannot sit here and wait. So all the efforts uh, we put into uh, national change uh, just didn't work. And so now, at least they haven't worked yet. And uh, this is not a criticism of President Obama. It's just the nature of our, our system right now. But what's happening at state levels uh, and what's happening in city levels and city regions is where the action is. Uh, ben Barber recently wrote a book called uh, When Mayors Rule the World. And that's indicative of how this, this grassroots movement is beginning to take hold. We're going to have to do it anyway. With or without the federal government, we've got to begin to move. So can we begin to create security and independence and make it clean and green and safe and prosperous and fair? And the answer, I think, is yes. So life in this world uh, doesn't have to be grim, uh, nasty, brutish, and short, as Thomas Hobbes put it. This can be a really, really good world. It's worth fighting for. And I've got two granddaughters that are about to show up here. And uh, can we make a world for them that really does work? And I think the answer is overwhelmingly yes, but it's going to have to be done from the bottom up. We're going to have to begin to take this, uh, this issue and begin to rebuild communities. And you're doing that so well out here in California. Uh, three last uh, thoughts. Number one, when people say we can't afford to do this, you know, we really appreciate your sustainability goals and renewable energy and so forth, but we can't afford to do it, the answer back is no, you can't afford not to. And your choice is whether you pay now or pay a whole lot more in the future. And you pay with, um, well, thanks for that. There are two of us that agree at that point. Uh, the rest of you are all Republicans, I guess. No, I didn't mean to say that. Uh, that was terrible. That was awful. I take that back. Uh, Theo, delete that from the, the film. But uh, we pay one way or another. We pay with wars and pollution and health care and violence and so forth. Second is this. In thinking about how these things work, whether it's our bottom-up effort in the Lake Erie Crescent or similar region, uh, regional efforts elsewhere, Optimize the system, not the parts. And then finally, there aren't many accidents in how these things evolve. The old attorney's uh, adage of follow the money really does work. Understand the rules by which we play. And these aren't accidents that happen. Climate change is not an anomaly. It's not an accident. Ocean acidification is not an anomaly. It's not an accident. This was the logical result of a system predicated at growth at all costs. And the costs included climate and oceans and environment and people and so forth. Uh, the last thing thought is this. Uh, time is really short. So let me end with a quote from uh, Martin Luther King. This is one of the great state papers, I think, in uh, the past hundred years in the United States. There is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare and naked and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of man doesn't remain at the flood. It ebbs. We may cry out desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is deaf to every plea and rushes on. Over the bleached bones and jumbled residue of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words, too late. I want to thank you and thank Bioneers. We're not going to be too late. We're going to make this change. It may not be real pretty. It may not be smooth, but we're going to make this change. Thank all of you. Thank you, Dr. Orr. <laughs> A little rough of agreement out there. 
Yeah, and here in California, we like to think that we're, you know, the big leaders in a lot of sustainability, but then we look at Oberlin, and it's, <laughs> it adds a bit of humility. I don't know about the Cleveland Indians, though. The Giants are looking really good. <laughs> 2016. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Um, I especially like the quote from uh, Martin Luther King that uh, reminds us not only that there is such a thing as being too late, but also reminds us that great change is indeed possible. Uh, we have seen so much change from, since he made that quote, uh, but we also have so much farther to go, both in civil rights and in questions of governance in general. Great. And... Uh, up our next set of slides here. And uh, maybe our tech person can come make sure our next set of slides comes up. I'll introduce our next speaker, uh, who is Louise Bedsworth. Um, Dr. Louise Bedsworth. She is the de Deputy Director of California Governor's Office of Planning and Research. And if you've never heard of this office, they're actually a little bit of like the silent hand that makes some things move in the state of California, so it's worth knowing about. Um, she was formerly a research fellow with the Public Policy Institute of California, focusing on adaptation to climate change. And let's see, I think I need access to this computer here. Um, she's also held positions with the Union of Concerned Scientists, Redefining Progress. I miss Redefining Progress. It was a good organization. And the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis. So working for the state, she'll give us a little more of an insider's view on that. Welcome, Louise. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me here today. I wish we had gone alphabetically or something, because that's a tough act to follow. Um, but I'm going to talk a bit about what we're doing here in California um, and an effort that we have underway uh, to really think about how we plan for the state's future, building on what we're doing now. And I think it combines efforts that we're trying to support from the bottom up models like what's happening in Oberlin and other cities and counties and regions around the country and around California, um, but then also what we're doing at the state level to really um, look towards the future. And this is under, so the Governor's Office of Planning and Research, if you haven't heard of it, was built, it was created in 1970 as we're part of the Governor's Office. We're the long-term planning agency for the state. Uh, we serve as counsel to the governor and the cabinet on long-term environmental issues. Of course, our role has evolved a lot since 1970, and the office ebbs and flows with different administrations. Um, but I think one thing uh, David said at the beginning of his talk was about a document from 1965. One of the documents that we look at as, our, um, as a really important piece that's come out of OPR was in 1978, and that was under Governor Brown's first administration when he drafted an urban strategy for California. And actually, um, it was really looking at the state's urban areas, how we create and sustain vibrant, exciting places to live, and doing that so that we can preserve the state's natural lands, working landscapes, agricultural lands, and avoid the urban decline that was starting to happen in eastern and midwestern cities at that time. And I mention that only because what's kind of scary about that document, too, is you can read that document today, and you could change a few numbers and up the population, throw the word climate change in there a few times, and probably put, put it out today, and no one would know the difference. I mean, it's very similar to a lot of the efforts we have underway today um, in California and elsewhere, and that, that was a really important document. And that's actually a piece that we're trying to recreate, looking out now, trying to take this longer-term view. 
Um, and it's something called the Environmental Goals and Policy Report, um, which is a catchy name, I know. But we're looking at it now in the context of California with 50 million people. So we have 38 million residents today. By the middle of this century, California is expected to have 50 million people living here. So we're really trying to look at how do we continue to grow our state, our people, our economy, but also protect our environment, um, address climate change, and, um, and really strike that balance and preserve the lands that we want to preserve, develop economy in the way we want it to grow, an energy system, infrastructure, um, and everything like that. So this is just the population going to 50 million by 2050. Um, it's more or less a straight line. The biggest difference is if you looked at this line a few years ago, it was much steeper. So one thing that's been interesting about California is our growth has moderated quite a bit um, in the last few years for a number of reasons. Um, immigration and migration into the state has slowed down. We've also seen faster, um, uh, we've seen immigrant communities become more like native-born communities faster than we thought. So birth rates within the Hispanic community have declined much faster than we thought um, originally in the projections the state demographers did. And so we are seeing a more, a slower um, growth, looking more like a, a regular state, not like what California used to look like, which was this booming growth. Along with that, we have a number of fa um, factors affecting our demographics. One, we're seeing, and we've seen this for a while, this actually isn't new, um, but I don't know that our policies are very well suited to it. Uh, our fastest growing areas are the inland parts of the state, places where we have a lot of land and a lot of place to expand. It may or may not be land we want to grow on. It's also where we have our prime agricultural lands. It's where we have our most important habitat. Um, it's where we have lands where we want to be de developing renewable energy. So how do we um, look at all those factors um, in, that, in those growth areas? We also have an aging population. Um, this is looking out in 2030. We're going to have a much higher share of the population over the age of 60, um, almost double uh, what we had in 2000. And so we really have to think about how do we accommodate the population that we have um, coming and what our population is going to look like. What does that mean in terms of our housing needs, our transportation needs, all of those, um, excuse me, all those factors. Uh, we also have a growing income gap in California, and this is really, this is not unique to California. We're seeing this nationwide. This shows household income between um, 1980 and 2010. This is a graph from the Public Policy Institute of California. What you see is rapid growth in the highest income um, earners and flattening or you know, stagnant or declining uh, income at the lowest levels. Uh, this is also really striking when you look region by region or county by county across the state, when you look at educational attainment, when you look at household incomes, when you look at unemployment rates. Our state is um, very different if you compare Marin County or San Mateo or Santa Clara County with um, Tulare County, uh, where you're going to see an unemployment level that's almost three times as high um, in Tulare. And so how do we manage and grow a state where we have that kind of disparity um, today. Okay, and then of course, our really the framing issue I think that touches on everything we're trying to do and is really a driving factor um, in this administration and in the previous one too, I think, um, is climate change. And the fact that we have committed ourselves to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions to 1990 levels by 2020, but also to deep emission reductions 80% below 1990 levels uh, by 2050. And um, the state is on path 
to meet that 2020 target, and we're actually working on what does it look like to keep us on that path to 2050. And what you can see is um, that's a much steeper decline. And so if you look at trying to maintain a constant percent emission reduction rate, uh, rate of emission reduction um, between 2020 and 2050, we're going to be after reducing emissions at about five times the rate that we have been to meet our 2020 target. Um, so we're really looking at what does that look like? How do we make that happen? Um, and thinking about a benchmark between 2020 and 2050 that's going to get us on that steeper path. Um, and that's something we're working on right now. Uh, the other piece of this is the fact that we know uh, we're already experiencing climate change. We know that the drought we're in right now, while it cannot be attributed to climate change, the conditions that led to this drought are more prevalent under today's climate conditions. Uh, with, along with that, we see the wildfires that we've seen this year, the King Fire. Um, it grew 15 miles in one day. And that was because of the dry conditions, the high temperatures, um, the overgrowth of, in the forests, um, and the amount of fuel load that we have. Um, but we're seeing those effects today. And if we look to the middle of the century, the end of the century, even under our most optimistic scenarios, where we reduce emissions globally very successfully, we're still going to see more change because of what's in the atmosphere. Um, and this is the point where I, this is the third time I've had to show this slide this week, and I'm, it's very depressing, and I'm sorry. But there's a lot that we can do. Um, and there are a lot of things we have underway that will be helping us um, adapt to those changes we know are coming and that we're experiencing now, and that are also helping us to reduce emissions. Um, but it is a real challenge, and I think it's going to be a really important um, companion to our efforts to reduce emissions is thinking about how we prepare for those um, changes uh, that we are experiencing and how do we maintain an agricultural industry in the kinds of conditions that we have today um, with the water system that we have. So as we look to our future, we've been working on, a couple, on several fronts, which is how do we create the, vi the vision? What is it that we want our future to look like in California? Developing cross-cutting goals. And this is really thinking in that way of not silo by silo, but what is it that we're trying to do? So in California, if you follow California policy um, or regulation or even the number of bills that are passed and signed every year, I think this year it was 500, um, we have no shortage of goals in California. And uh, they are not all complementary. In fact, some of them conflict with one another. Um, and so really trying, what we've been trying to do is take an inventory of what goals do we have how do they fit together and where are they taking us? And what's it going to take to achieve them? Um, and then how are we going to track our progress uh, once as we're doing that? And so we're working on all three of these fronts. So we think about our vision. And we encapsulated all of this in a discussion draft of a document called California's Climate Future, California at 50 million. Um, and this is the discussion draft of the governor's environmental goals and policy report. And we put the draft out. Um, uh, last fall, actually, then over the last six months, we've done about 13 workshops across the state of California, um, from Eureka down to San Diego, including um, Lake Tahoe and um, Riverside and Inland Empire. So been around listening and hearing from people, putting out, here's what we think our future should look like. What do you all think? And how does this um, look compared to what you're trying to achieve in your community? Um, it's really not surprising. I think you know we look at having a strong economy. We look at having our vibrant urban areas, prosperous and sustainable rural regions. 
um, a vibrant and healthy econ or, sorry, environment, a healthy and engaged population, thinking about um, public health, but also civic engagement, efficient and sound infrastructure, so thinking about how do we maintain and preserve what we have and invest in infrastructure for the future that will help us achieve this vision. And that includes things like broadband um, and other things we don't often think of as infrastructure that are, but are really going to help us build the state that we want to see. And then we have a series of cross-cutting goals, and I think, um, and I'll go through what each of those are and what we have, what, what our main efforts are within each of them. The first is, I think, really an acknowledgement and a recognition of the fact that we are not going to accomplish this from the state level alone. And so we have to be supporting from the bottom up, building sustainable and healthy communities all across California. We have state programs to do this, but we also have really important planning that's happening at the local level that we're trying to support through grant programs, guidance, and tools. This includes um, our active transportation program, sustainable communities planning, which is happening at a regional scale to link transportation and land use planning to reduce um, the amount people have to drive, taking steps to further promote infill development. The state actually has planning priorities that were adopted in 2002. The first of those priorities is to develop in compact, already developed areas, so thinking about redevelopment opportunities and infill development opportunities. We've done a number of things in the past couple years to try to make that easier. There's still a long way to go. Um, integrating public health, climate change, and economic development into our planning processes. Um, in our office, we are also the primary liaison between the state and local governments. We provide the guidance for city and county long-term planning documents called general plans. We're working right now on updating those, the guidelines and the tools for that process to allow this type of integration to happen. Um, and then this is, I, these are pictures that I've taken over the last year or so from all different parts of the state. This is a little cheating, this is where I live. This is Oakland where they've seen a very successful uh, redevelopment of, uh, this is Lake Merritt and then of the downtown region or area. Um, the second really cross-cutting goal for us is thinking about preserving and stewarding natural resources. And this is of course a huge one. I think the big emphasis that we're trying to place here is on the stewardship and really thinking about no longer just designating and identifying places we want to protect for whatever reason, but think about how do we actively manage them to maximize the benefits for that um, ecosystem and for the for communities. So if we think about a forest or a watershed, we're not just thinking about protection, but we're thinking about stewardship so that we're getting out of that system the best that we can and building the connection between our urban areas and our natural areas to understand why that is important. So that gets into thinking about um, ecosystem services and how we can better recognize those. I know that's a word that not everyone loves, um, but how we can better recognize those in our planning so that we think not just about costs and benefits that we currently quantify, but trying to get that broader um, uh, element of the natural system into our decision making. We're talking a lot more about using regional approaches to mitigation and stewardship, um, thinking about the quality of our mitigation measures, not just a quantity. So if you're building a project, um, let's think about the fact that every acre of protected land is not equivalent, and how do we reflect that? And how do we think regionally so that we're connecting all of these projects and efforts to maximize the benefits? 
Um, and so really this gets to pr promoting active manage management and stewardship of our natural resources. Of course, um, this also, as a critical piece of this, and none of these are distinct from one another, these, all these elements are connected, but another important cross-cutting goal is to support a sustainable water system in California. And this is an area that is evolving right now as we speak. We just had some of the largest water legislation in, um, in the last several decades passed in California with the groundwater legislation that happened this session, which is moving us for the first time to be managing our groundwater resources in California, which is going to be is critical. Um, we're looking a lot at the water and energy nexus, so how um, water efficiency and energy efficiency go hand in hand and, and why they're, um, and how through saving water, we're saving energy. We use a lot of energy to move water around our state. Uh, delivering safe, clean drinking water to everyone. We have communities in our state, particularly in the Central Valley, who do not have access to clean drinking water. Uh, we have places right now where they turn on their tap and they don't have water. Um, and that is in California with the largest, we're the seventh, eighth, ninth, whatever we are right now, largest economy in the world. Um, and so how do we address that and really think about that holistically? Um, and with that, also thinking about species and habitat. And I think um, another big um, effort underway with the Delta right now is really looking at how all of these pieces fit together in an ecosystem and really then thinking about a resilient water system. How do we protect ourselves and get ourselves in a position when the next drought like this happens that we don't have people with no water coming out of their tap and that they are able, um, you know, that we're able to weather the kinds of variability and change that we're going to see. The other uh, cross-cutting goal is decarbonizing energy and transportation. It's a really wonky, geeky word, but um, there's a lot of reason why we ended up there. If it's really thinking about the, tra the transformation of our energy and transportation systems that is underway already and that we're trying to continue. When we look at our 2050 um, greenhouse gas emission reduction goal for California, we need to have over three quarters of our electricity coming from renewable sources. We need to increase energy efficiency of our building stock at a sustained level um, for the next several decades that's never been seen before. We need to have about 80% of our direct fuel uses to be electricity. So all of these things have to happen. That includes electrifying transportation. We really have to be thinking in a much more integrated way about these systems, that we no longer have electricity generation, cars, these are all becoming one and the same, and how this all fits together is going to be critical. And energy efficiency is a, an incredibly important piece of this because that's really going to help us save money and not overinvest in new infrastructure to power all of these things. Um, smart land use and um, reduction of travel and VMT is also critically important there as well, much in the same way uh, that energy efficiency is in buildings or appliances. And then finally, uh, incorporating climate resilience um, into all of our policies and investments. We have an emission reduction goal for California. We can measure our greenhouse gas emissions. We can measure our megawatts of renewable energy. Um, we really need to start thinking about how we get ourselves more resilient. Um, and so this is going to be involved in developing guidelines for our infrastructure investments. Uh, we have priorities for green and natural infrastructure, things that can help us um, be more resilient, but also um, help our natural systems. Um, and then really moving to where we're considering climate change in all of our policies. And this, I think, is particularly eye-opening um, 
Governor Brown was on uh, President Obama's task force for state, local, and tribal leaders on climate resilience. And um, that's been meeting over the last about nine months. And as part of that, we led the communities, community development subgroup, which was really looking at what federal programs can we help to boost community resilience? Well, that is a huge, huge question. And we went, first meeting, Secretary of Health and Human Services wasn't even there. You go talk to people about supplemental nutrition programs, they're not thinking about climate change. We really have to be getting climate change and that consideration that what all of the, into these broad swath of programs. And so that's really something at the state level that is starting to happen through a number of different initiatives. Um, and so those are really our um, cross-cutting goals. When we think about what we're trying to do for California's futures, we're trying to really build our strong communities. Um, we are investing in a high-speed rail system that is really can serve, if done appropriately, will serve as a major economic connector of our state. It will serve um, really important regions of our state, and efforts are underway to really think about how we tie that in to our urban systems to, make, to maximize the benefit environmentally and economically. We're also working to preserve our natural systems for their intrinsic value, but also for recreation. This is a picture of South Lake Tahoe where they've done tremendous efforts to protect the lake with really innovative programs um, to reduce the sediment load to the lake, but also build a much more vibrant community around that end of Lake Tahoe. Um, and then our mountain systems. Thinking about the state's agricultural system and really how do we continue to support the really important economic um, and cultural aspect of this state that we have um, in this agricultural system. And really knowing that that's who we're doing it for is all of our kids. So with that, I will, yeah. Great. Are these mics on? Yeah, great, they are. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Luis. And I was uh, especially glad to hear you mentioned that the state has been uh, talking about impacts of climate change on food security and uh, supplemental nutrition. It's something that's not often mentioned at that level. So it's really wonderful to hear you say that. Oh, great. So we have some time for uh, discussion, which is fantastic. But I also know that it is Sunday afternoon. You know, it's warm. The energy gets a little down. So I just want you to, to do a little something. Think of one word in your head that describes the future you want. Think of that word. And on the count of three, we're all going to shout it out loud. All right? Okay, think of your word. Think of your word. You have it? Okay, one, two, three. All right, good. <laughs> so now, think of your questions about how do we structure governance to get there. And while you're thinking of that, oh, we have somebody with a question and he's approaching the mic. Yeah, okay, good. Um, we have somebody with a question, go ahead. Um, this is a question for David. Uh, David, first, I just want to say I just graduated from Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland, mm -hmm. and you should know that I am extremely jealous of you um, because I just spent the past two years trying to put down an eighth of an acre permaculture garden at my school, and it is still not done. Um, but I actually like that kind of a lot of what you said about the transforming the region around the school 
is really, really important because colleges, especially with, you know, the more resources you have at your disposal and the more brilliance kind of in your pool gives you a lot of ability to affect your town, your cities, and, and whatnot. So what we're beating our heads out against in Baltimore is how do we how do we how do we use the very limited resources that we have being a school with you know 1400 people and a, and an operating budget of 60 million dollars a 7.1 million dollar endowment mm -hmm. um, how do we use that to transform a city that has 14,000 vacant lots 12,000 vacant homes um, and an, extra an extraordinary amount of poverty and degradation um, much like Oakland from the crack epidemic in the 90s um, and that's being somewhat, to be blunt about it, trampled over by Johns Hopkins um, in their persi persistent gentrification of the city. Hmm. Um, not, and I'm not, I don't want to argue about whether gentrification is a good or a bad thing because it's a very, it's a very messy and complicated issue. But how much influence can you have, for instance, in, in that greater pool based on you know, who's living there? Like, in for Oberlin is a small town, and I imagine that there are probably quite a few grads who stick around for a little or a lot of time. We call that fail to launch. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, first, it's a really good question. Thanks for, thanks for asking. Goucher's a great school, by the way. Um, I think the, the model, higher education is going to have to change. Uh, the Internet alone is going to change it dramatically. Uh, we used to have a monopoly on learning. It was in the library, and you could uh, sell 120 credit hours and, and uh, credential a student, not for 119, but all for 120 hours. And that model is changing dramatically. And credentialing can be done by lots of outside organizations and so forth. So education is going to change dramatically. What we're proposing, however, is that in the change process, that we function as an anchor institution. We have buying power. We have investing power. We have a lot of the public respect. We have great students like you that are smart and want to change the world. We have great faculty resources. We have laboratories and so forth. So it's a little bit like salt in the stew. It's not large by volume, but it changes the flavor a lot. And so can we begin to forge alliances? And so what we're doing with uh, John Warbach and, and a number of other colleagues is to begin to pull together educational institutions like Michigan State, where I was a graduate, uh, like the University of Michigan, like Michigan at uh, Flint, University of Toledo, Case Western, Oberlin, and so forth, and begin to shift the buying and investing power. That's all we're doing. And so you can't do it. A goucher can't change Baltimore on its own, but you can start the process. And so the idea, the theory that we're working with is that you can pull together universities and the educational sector generally, the healthcare sector, which is huge in the case of Cleveland and Detroit, uh, sports teams, other NGOs, uh, and begin to shift their buying power. So what you want is what we're trying to do is to get the chief financial officers of those kind of institutions together with an advisory group and begin to shift. And no, you just want to change the address on the invoices. So you shift from sending money to California to keeping it right smack in that region, and the same in, in the Baltimore region. So you've got a lot of assets, you've got a lot of, uh, I mean, you've got a long way to go, but we've got a long way to go, and actually longer than, than Baltimore, I think. So uh, it, it's band together, come together, create coalitions around this. And so we're trying to do what we're doing in the Lake Erie Crescent, we're trying to do the same thing in the upper Midwest, along the front range of the Rocky Mountains, in the southeast, and the upper uh, uh, part of New England, uh, and in California here. So 
uh, think about it. I mean, we have to be agents. We have to be students of how things change. And the advantage you have in, in California is uh, you've already got change agents here. Uh, uh, so Louise has agreed to come to Ohio, uh, move to Columbus, Ohio, and set up shop <laughs> with us in Ohio. I, th I think that's what you said, right? Yes. <laughs> anyway, th thanks for the question. Thank you. All right. And I'd like to encourage our speakers also to think about the topic of structures of governance as we answer our questions as well. Please. Excellent. Uh, thank you both, all of you, for, for being here in the audience as well. And my question is in regards to uh, changing the paradigm where, where pol uh, money and the politics involved in money really influence the policy output. And specifically, maybe for Luis, but probably for David as well, um, Many efforts have been made to pass policies at a state level to implement mm -hmm. truly deep green ecological practices, but if they don't make a huge uh, profit for industry, they never get past lobbying. And so my question is, uh, there is there is some efforts to like create a, a local in Santa Barbara right now. There's a sustainable living research ordinance that's being moved forward to create a legal framework to allow people to actually do the R&D work to prove that these deep green practices can be done. You know, things like composting toilets and wastewater treatment systems that are really low tech and natural building, all these things that have been demonstrated the world over, but without the industries making huge profits, we can't get them legalized. So how would you suggest, both at a, at a state level, how can the state support local innovation and transformation in local economies and within those regulatory framework and um, really get the, the money out of the policy? Next question. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was a good um, question. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think it's a great question, and I, I think um, I, I don't know that I have a very good answer for you. I think there have been some nice examples, at least, where we have been able to help. I mean, we think about community choice aggregation for local energy, um, where there's been a big push to try from industry to try to get rid of it, and um, and we've managed to keep that off. Or when they tried to strike down um, AB 32, Global Warming Solutions Act, we saw a tremendous. Um, I mean that. Uh, proposition got beat it, beaten handily. Um, but I think it's a challenge. I think one area that we're looking a lot at right now um, is, is gray water and recycled water. I mean, and I think it really comes down to chipping away bit by bit. Um, and, you know, I think the, the water, the drought has really pushed that to a point where we're thinking, okay, this is, we have to figure out how to make this happen. And so that's something that we're sort of chipping away on. Um, Food is another. Um, we've had a challenge. Uh, we have a lot of people who want to work on food with the state. Um, I think right now, though, what we need is also some external um, support and partnerships to, to make that happen. I don't think we really have the expertise right now to think about what is a sustainable local food system look like. And um, we've had uh, been working with someone from Los Angeles who's got really interesting and neat ideas around aquaculture. and. Um, and we've been really trying to, uh, we've done a lot, I think, at the state on some of these innovative ideas of really um, having a lot of success with partnering with outside organizations, the philanthropic world or nonprofit community or private, um, you know, private, some instance private companies. That's when we haven't been able to really get people to grab onto. Um, so I think in a way it's unfortunately slow and a little bit issue by issue. 
Um, we also have been trying to get a better handle on what are the barriers, though, for a city or a county to be able to do some of those things, and where can the state step in to help? So solar permitting, for instance. Um, we uh, made a guidebook for, sol for streamlining sol permitting of solar systems. There was a law this year now that requires every single jurisdiction in California to have a streamlined permitting process, and they follow now the guidebook that we created. So, you know, I think it is, it is a little piecemeal, but it is happening um, a little bit by bit. I agree with all that, and, and California is, is doing so much more than most other states in the union. Go to 35,000 feet in just a second. Your, your question asks us, in a way, to identify the, ele the proverbial elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is money, pure, plain, simple. And if you put 400 people in this uh, space, you could easily do it. The top 400, the, most, the wealthiest 400 people in the United States have more net wealth, not income, but net wealth, than the bottom 185 million. You can't, we can't run a democracy with that ratio. Can't do it. No way. You can't get from here to there. So when Naomi Klein yesterday talked about uh, the title of her book is This Changes Everything. Well, it does change everything. And climate change now puts that issue in bold relief. And so the first thing we have to do at 35,000 feet, include all the things that Louise has said here, are, are wonderful. That's down in the weeds at this level, and they're necessary. They're, they're where rubber meets road in a way. But we've got to take money out of politics, pure, plain, simple. You have to, we have to begin. We, we pay for, we pay for, uh, okay. We've got one fan out here. We, we pay for federal elections one way or another. Why don't we pay above board instead of below the board? How come the Supreme Court says that uh, uh, wealthy people can essentially buy elections? Citizens United was a fraud. It was a, the worst decision since Dred Scott. And there have been lots of bad decisions in between Dred Scott and here. <laughs> That's just, I think, about the worst. And so it opened the doors to corruption at a scale that we can barely imagine. We have to change that. This is the hard work of politics. I mean, you're doing it here in California better than we're doing it in Ohio by far. But this is the work of our generation to break free. So if you compare, say, our, uh, the corporation to, say, feudalism or to, you know, uh, King George III was a petty tyrant compared to ExxonMobil and Monsanto. <laughs> he posed nowhere near the threat to human well-being and dignity. And to the, he couldn't pose the threat to the future generations, of, of, but, but ExxonMobil does. So money is the heart of the issue. One last point here, and this is pointed out in Bill McKibben's great article in uh, Rolling Stone on uh, climate change's terrifying new math. We can't burn 70 to 80 percent of the fossil fuel reserves that are presently on the books. We can't do it and have any kind of decent future. So another 575 gigatons puts us way past uh, or puts us at the margin of going over 2 degrees centigrade. And I never trust these numbers because what we found out in the climate science is Things happen faster, long before you think at 400 parts per million now, we are seeing things that weren't predicted until we get to 450 or something. And parts of Antarctica passed the, uh, uh, according to NASA, have passed the tipping point so that the melting of large parts of Antarctica, the West Antarctic ice sheet, is essentially irreversible. This is intolerable. And they will break no law by burning all those reserves. So our choices are three. We can compensate them. We can ba basically buy them out. It's what the British did in, uh, for slaves in the Caribbean in the 1800s. 
or we can confiscate them. We can simply take those reserves and say, that's part of the global commons. You have no right to burn those reserves. Or we can, we can make them irrelevant. We can, by, by pressing the renewable energy uh, and efficiency, and efficiency is the, the missing part of this dialogue often. Half the energy we use is waste. So we, we can make them irrelevant, or we can do part of all three. But if we buy them out, uh, what McKibben uh, says roughly, say, $20 trillion of, of wealth on the, on the books, is that such a burden, amortized over, say, 50 years? We can do that. We could buy that out. We're wealthy enough to do it. It would save us all kinds of costs and not do it. Anyway, pardon me. I didn't take my Ritalin this morning. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is a hot issue, but, but we, we can't. We've got to get money out of politics, period, one way or the other. Thanks for the question. Speaking truth. <laughs> Thank you. Hi there. Uh, my name is Mike Chizov. I'm a graduate student in sustainable communities outside of Flagstaff, Arizona. And I think my question is, I guess, one of ethics in a way. Um, I've been hearing a lot this weekend about transitioning to local-based economies, and I think like, that's a fantastic move, and I'm really excited to hear that it's happening, and especially you know, hearing your work, David. Um, I guess for me, my struggle in kind of conceptualizing my work towards, and you know, my place in that sort of, sort of, sort of transition is, I mean, we have a global economy right now, and a lot of countries are tied into our, our global economy. So in transitioning our cities, our states, to local, are we leaving other countries in the dust in that? Like, I'm thinking Bangladesh and the clothing industry. Like, if we all started making our own clothing, that leaves a whole country, or at least a portion of that country, kind of out cold. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in hearing your opinions about that, because I think it is a question of ethics at that point. And so like, how do we navigate that? Uh, well, thanks for the question. It, it's a good question, and it, it, it's complicated if you take the, that question down into the layers of it. And so it, it, it deserves a serious answer that we don't have time for right here, but let me say this. The global economy right now is an extractive economy, and neoliberalism has about ruined a lot of countries. We haven't budged global poverty. It is expanding. So in this interdependent global world, run not on principles Adam Smith identified. Adam Smith thought that money would march up to the edge of a, a country's border and stop there. Uh, now there are a couple trillion dollars that wash around the world every 24 hours in search of the lowest or the highest rate of return. And most of that is unregulated. And so think of the U.S. economy, what after, after Glass-Steagall was repealed, that 1933 law that kept banks out of investments and so forth. Uh, the global economy collapsed uh, in 2008, largely because of the lack of regulation. This is an unregulated, extractive Ponzi scheme. And don't make any mistake about it. We, the, everybody that knows finance says that the next collapse will be bigger and it could be a kind of a permanent collapse. So we're not doing anybody any favor in running an extractive economy. And there's so many presentations here in the last three days about uh, oil companies in the Amazon and overfishing and so forth. That's all the extractive economy. And so uh, we can, there, there's a better economy trying to get born. And a lot of it's been discussed here at Bioneers. A lot of it's in operation. It is going to be a more localized economy. It will not be based on uh, fossil fuels. It will be based on renewable energy and fairness and justice and decency. And uh, again, back to my other point, you can't run that economy with the income distribution we now have. There is money going to the very top of the system and very little coming down here to the bottom of the system. And we're told the neoliberal model says you can't afford teachers, you can't afford health workers, you can't afford regulation, you can't afford public transportation. We can't afford those things? You've got to be kidding me. In this country alone, we're spending over a trillion dollars to fight wars and a military budget. 
We can afford it. Uh, they can't afford it. And so this, this change from public uh, to private, and the last thing I'd say is this. The market since about 1980, uh, I've, got a whole, I've seen a whole generation of students come in and think the market solves everything because that's part of the ideology of the time. This is not an argument against markets in the right place. But markets are where you and I say, I, me, and mine. And government or governance is where we say we and ours and the future generations. That's where we do the public business. Now, all of us are both. I mean, we're all citizens, and so we're, we're part of the governance system. We're all consumers also, so we're part of the market system. And the, the balancing act here is to make government do what governments does very well. We need regulations. We need research. We need leadership. We need, you know, public transportation. We need things that only government can do. Markets don't do those things. But we also need markets. So it's, it's not one or the other. It is both in some kind of effective ratio. So there's a new economy trying to get born, and a lot of it's been discussed here. But thanks for the question. So it's a uh, remarkably good question, and it goes to the heart of a lot of what we, we have to do. Jimmy, any thoughts on that, Luis? First, Louise, I really wanted to thank you. That was such a progressive statement from somebody working for a, a state office. So I, I was really very surprised that California thinks like this across the board. And I hope that you're able to get those done. But I'm from Detroit. And I, like most of my um, peers, left as soon as I could. As soon as I got out of college, I headed east. But I've been coming back the last couple of years and, and going back to Detroit and seeing how I might pitch in and so I was really struck by your um, swath of uh, cities and your green belt area and your thought. And I was wondering, do you have any inkling that we might put together something with the Senate, um, with Debbie Stabenow, who does run agriculture for the Senate, and, and model something that could then move east and also west and try and take your vision and actually put that forth, something like the 50-year farm bill, which we know was dead on arrival, but... Do you have any thoughts of, of putting something like that together? Yeah, and Debbie Savin, I was one of the lights, I think, in, in, uh, in Washington. Uh, Jennifer Granholm, and I mentioned the other day, yeah, Jennifer, talking yeah. to Jennifer Granholm, a former governor. Uh, she's out here in Berkeley uh, for the time uh, next year or so, I guess. But trying to rethink urban life and where the decay has gone so far, all the red spots on that, uh, that map, that was a, I digitized that out of a report that came out on Detroit uh, six or so months ago. All the red on that map is decayed or abandoned property. And so most of that probably needs to come down. The challenge is going to be, when you begin to uh, listen to Louise on climate change uh, and all the data, that means people are going to be migrating north. We're about to see the largest internal migration of the next half century that we've ever seen. And people, they'll, they'll be leaving the south and the, the deep south and southwest because of heat and lack of water and all the stresses that relate there too. And so they're going to be going uh, northwest, upper midwest, around the Great Lakes or the northeast. And that migration will begin, uh, and when it comes to Detroit, people are coming back into Detroit. They may be coming back uh, as refugees, not as opportunity seekers. That's, that's the challenge. And so in places like Detroit, we have to begin, Cleveland and Toledo and all the, the northern Rust Belt cities. 
we have to begin to create the basis of a brand new economy. And that economy is going to be based, I think, a lot more on basics like food and shelter and clean water. And so water purification technologies, that ought to be a growth industry in, in uh, those areas. Uh, the fastest way to add a billion dollars to the Cleveland area, Northeast Ohio area, is going to be uh, local foods. Uh, our food budget in Northeast Ohio is around $8 billion per year. Of that, we grow $200 million. So we grow $200 million toward a, a roughly $8 billion budget. Can't do that. I think the also Detroit has so many assets in art, and I'm really glad to see that the art collection is, is going to be saved there. But begin to combine art and, and Detroit, the bones of Detroit uh, are great bones. There are wonderful buildings there. The decay, I think, can be reshaped and reimagination. And John Warbach ought to weigh in on this because Michigan State's been involved in, in rethinking Detroit also. So there are a lot of really good minds and good institutions on, on revisioning what a city can be. But Detroit is going to be a city, again, of a million, a million and a half, and two million people. And so in trying to think about the future, you've got to figure out, okay, what, what do we leave? What is the infrastructure we have to have in terms of roads, pipes, and wires, and schools, and post offices, and so forth? And then what do we have to tear out? So anyway, I think Debbie Stabenow can really help a whole lot. Jennifer Granholm and wants to. And, and again, this is bottom-up stuff and trying to figure out what we can do uh, that government in these places uh, has not done and perhaps cannot do, at least for a while longer. But uh, Lee, thanks for, the, thanks for the question. The only thing I would add, it's a, it's a different type of a problem. But I think it also relates a little bit to the 35,000-foot level that you were offering earlier. Is, I spent um, a week or so out in the Central Valley doing workshops um, on this document. And one, I was in one city, in the city of Modesto, where they have a whole lot of housing, um, very few jobs. People generally, um, you know, commute to the Bay Area. And, oh, sorry. And um, we were talking, and they said, we don't want any more housing. That state needs to stop how they allocate housing. We have too much. And we don't have any jobs. And I said, okay, well, so we sort of talked through it. And they said, what if we work on trying to get jobs here? Well, yeah, yeah, but we don't have this, the workforce that we need. We don't have the education system. And so when you kind of look at this problem, which started as our, the sustainability problem, which is the amount of travel and out commute, and it's an economic issue, but what it came down to, their basic challenge is educational attainment and investment in education. You know, so in a way, you also have to get down to what is the underlying issue. And, and similarly, in the Inland Empire, um, they've got a great workforce. They have no companies. So people live there and commute to Los Angeles. And so I think in a lot of ways, each region is going to have a slightly different approach mm -hmm. with slightly different challenges, but to get us to a similar place that we want to be. I think our vision is similar. But what the challenge is in each different each place is different, and and we have to figure out how we can um, incorporate that diversity into that shared vision. Because I really think, for the most part, everyone said, "Yeah, that's what we want." And places are doing really neat stuff all over. This is just in California, but all over the state. Um, but the challenges they face in achieving that um, are, are very different. And I think that's a challenge for the state and a challenge for each of our regions as well. And I imagine it's going to be true in revitalizing that area, mm -hmm. you know, in that mm -hmm. crescent on Lake Erie as well, is really getting down to what is it that we need to invest in at a core level to help boost all that other stuff happening. I think we've got time for one more question. And my apologies to the, to the wonderful people in line. Um, and then perhaps a, uh, a 
couple of closing thoughts on what structures of governance will get us to these visions that we are going for. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, so I'm from New York City. Um, I'm, a, I'm studying environmental science and urban planning and GIS. And so the main thing for me is I know New York City is never going to give up skyscrapers. And so for me, I, I think that the towers and the park paradigm has the other way around. It needs to be the parks and the towers. How do we get that to actually happen? Because what I'm seeing happening in New York City is they're taking that idea, but they're not taking it far enough. They're adding these small pocket parks and areas of land that aren't really used for much. And it's great to have more green space. It makes people happier, all that. But it's not really making people conscious of how important it is to make the built environment. It's not something that's completely separate from the, nat from the natural environment. Like, how do, we, how do we get to that point where it's not just lip service? I thought that was going to be a yes or no question. Uh, yeah. so we, I mean, what I would say, I mean, I that's, looked... That's a great question. It's a great question. And the other thing um, in going around and meet in all these different communities, in every single place that I met with people, Riverside, Chico, San Diego, someone brought up um, that our kids don't get out enough in nature. And how do we build that connection back. And um, it stumped me a lot. I was like, oh my, I can't put out a report for the governor that says, oh, we're just gonna get everyone back outside, you know, and that's the answer. But someone actually, I thought, really flipped it around for me in a, in a nice way, which was um, that that's actually what is real is the connection between people and our natural environment and, and how we, when we walk places and when we drink water and when we do all these things, everything else is what we construct. Um, and, and so it's still very abstract, but I thought it was, it was intriguing to me that that came up in all very different places. Um, and I actually was struck in New York, uh, looking at the Plan YC process, mm -hmm. that there was actually a metric and a goal for having um, a proximity to parks. I don't know of many other places that have that. Um, we have a, a program in California across state agencies, it's called Health and All Policies, and it's been actually quite successful in really thinking about, okay, you're the Department of Transportation, you're Fish and Wildlife, you're, how do you start bringing public health in? I think that has helped to capture the idea of some of the connection between nature, parks, recreation. Um, but it's, it's challenging, and I think um, it's in, when you look at infill, the property values work against. If you have a parcel of land, you're gonna make a lot more money building a building, and so how do we create the structure that incentivizes that kind of development? I think that's, that's thing, and I think having targets and goals and criteria for design are one way to do that. Uh, two comments. First of all, thanks for the question. Uh, New York City and, and the, the mega cities of the world are really where rubber is going to meet road in this transition era. Uh, we're 50% urban now. We're told we'll be 70% urban by 2070 worldwide. Uh, two comments. One is New York City has done a lot. Plan YC and Mayor Bloomberg and so forth really, really moved a lot of things. And they have very smart climate policies. And so uh, I think given, given the nature of New York City, they're really doing quite well. The second thing is this. In conversations like this, we tend to go down to technical details. And the, the, the big issue for Detroit and all the coastal cities is going to be sea level rise. And in the uh, fourth uh, and also the fifth IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, sea level rise was still 
uh, down in the centimeters level, uh, roughly eight inches sea level rise since 1880 and, and so forth. Uh, with large parts of Greenland and the West Antarctic ice sheet now at or beyond tipping point, we know that the numbers are going to go up rather dramatically. And so uh, it isn't going to be maybe uh, a foot or two of sea level rise. It could be two meters, which is roughly, say, six feet. Uh, it could be more than that. And if you simply plot the projections of sea level rise, they themselves are going up like that. <clears throat> so uh, New York is going to be hard-pressed. Uh, Sandy was a harbinger. It wasn't a one-off thing. It was a harbinger of what's going to happen. Bigger storms, larger storm surges, and rising sea levels. And the whole east coast of the United States and global uh, uh, coastal cities everywhere are going to be under a lot of stress. We are going to have to begin to pull back uh, from the shore. Uh, New Orleans is a goner. No, no matter, you know, Brad Pitt's make it right. Uh, I applaud the effort, but uh, that isn't going to work. And uh, that the Ninth Ward also is in a bowl about 9 or 10 feet below sea level. But we're going to have to rethink urban areas in, in coastal places and also those in harm's way where storms are big and droughts are long and heat waves are catastrophic. And we haven't begun to think through that yet. And one of the great things that Bioneers does is to allow us to expand our imagination and our awareness and what we can do, uh, given that awareness, uh, imaginally to rethink the future. But uh, the fact is, sea level rise, uh, by the end of the century, which isn't all that far off, I mean, 86 years off is not a long time. By the end of the century, I think you can count on two meters, and maybe it's three, maybe it's four, but all bets are kind of off. And it doesn't stop in the year 2100, it goes on. And so the melting uh, continues for probably another, and sea level According to Susan Solomon, who is part of the IPCC, sea levels will continue to rise for a thousand years. So uh, we've got a long-term proposition, uh, and we better, I think, begin to think about pulling back from coastal areas. And even if we stop emitting carbon or heat-trapping gases uh, today, uh, that thousand-year change can, will continue. That, that's just simply the hard, remorseless numbers. That's not left or right. That's just the way this physical system called Earth uh, works. So uh, I think New York City is doing a great job. Uh, I think we have to begin to rethink settlement patterns along coastal areas seriously. And that leads in, that segue into the, the question uh, Kirsten wants us to ask about government structures. So uh, right now government is not positioned to help relocate uh, infrastructure and populations in a way that is uh, in any way adequate. I got more to say. Good. Well, then go ahead. Um, so yes, the question is, what types of governance structures will get us to the vision of where we need to be, and how do we make that happen? Okay. Well, let, let me just say for my part this. Um, the, the question at one level in my head, uh, I was trained in political science, is to rearrange the boxes. And so they're they're rearranged so that the outputs are a little bit better. So this person or this division reports to that division and so forth. And you can think of a lot of things that should happen at the federal level. Uh, uh, Newt Gingrich, in his uh, inestimable wisdom, helped abolish the Office of Technology Assessment in 1994. That was a huge mistake because that was, that was one of the premier bodies helping us do technological forecasting. And they were really good at it. Uh, they did it well. We have no Office of Technology Assessment right now. But stepping back from that, uh, the thing that ails 
our governing system more than anything else is the fact that government competes at one level with corporations at the other. And those corporations have been given or, or were said to be given the legal rights of persons. They, they had no such thing ever happened. If you read the Santa Clara County decision, uh, the part about uh, governments as persons was in the head notes to that decision. Weren't written by the Supreme Court Justice, they're written by Bancroft, the uh, guy named Bancroft, who was a corporate attorney, also the secretary to the Supreme Court. And he wrote it was something, in fact, it was assumed that corporations had the legal rights of persons, so the court didn't want to mess with those issues. The court never decided any such thing. But we have operated as if they did. That has to be changed. So I would propose you want to, you want to change government, you get the biggest source of mischief out of the way that has caused us more trouble in governance systems and in fairness. Uh, so I'd say corporations, uh, three strikes and you're out. You have your charter to do a specific thing as corporate charters used to be granted. And if you violate the charter, uh, you lose the charter. And they're granted for limited periods of time. So if we want to improve government, I think you have to uh, deal with a thing that ails government more than any other single thing, in my opinion. Uh, and this is a legal matter of uh, withdrawing corporate uh, charters. Uh, three strikes and you're out would work for me. Uh, uh, we say somebody, you know, a criminal on the street, three strikes and you go to jail for a long time. How about the same standard for corporate executives that violate the law, willingly, knowingly? Um, well, I guess I'll speak, I guess, more working within the structure we have now and what we're trying to do, and, and I think how we can really make change um, happen in California and actually hopefully beyond as well. I think probably one of the biggest things we can do is, is how we invest our money as a state. And I mean that not necessarily speaking about CalPERS and CalSTRS and our big retirement funds that are critical, but I also just mean the infrastructure budget we have, the grants and programs that we have, that we actually really start aligning um, those programs with what our goals are. And then we start having some accountability so that we understand that when we <laughs> expand a highway from two lanes to four or to six, what's gonna happen in that rural community is all the agricultural land's gonna go up for sale and houses are gonna get built there and then they're gonna need water and then this and fire protection and this and that. And how do we really start thinking about decisions in that way to get an outcome that is more aligned with where we want to be in the future? So that, I think, is a critical piece. I think the other thing that we're really working on in California is we know, and we trust me, we hear every day, uh, we are a drop in the global emissions bucket. Um, Everything is, but as someone explained very wisely recently to me, is a bucket is just made of drops. A bucket of water is just a bunch of drops. Um, and I think we have clearly subscribed to that in doing all that we're doing. Um, but we are working very actively to um, set ourselves a target to keep us on that path to 2050 and to engage with other states, regions, and cities who are doing the same. Um, and we have been in conversation with a number um, of states in, in right now in Germany um, and are really trying to build a coalition as we move to the <clears throat> Conference of the Party and Parties in Paris in 2015 where we can have a group of um, states and regions that actually represent a very large part of the world economy and say we are taking these true steps and actions and have made this commitment. And so I think it's how we operate internally but we're also really trying to build that coalition um, as we move towards 2015 in hopes that we 
do get that global agreement, even if it happens you know, from the bottom up, in this case, the bottom being the states and regions and cities um, that are working through C40 and others. So, Fantastic. So we have revoking corporate charters, and we have a global coalition of leadership on um, the bottom up. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for our panel. Thank you for coming. Thank you.